The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I am uh, grateful and happy to be with you this morning. And I congratulate all of us on getting up on a Sunday morning to show up for our lives, for ourselves, and in so doing, um, to receive the gift of other people doing the same. For those that are new to the Insight Meditation Center, I have uh, Mudita, which is the Buddhist uh, heart sentiment of sympathetic joy, or joy for the joy of others. So for those of you that have just found the Insight Meditation Center, knowing what I know about this center, I'm really happy for you. I hope that um, whatever brought you here uh, continues to work on you and I trust that the Insight Meditation Center is a good match for many people. (coughs) I'd like to begin my talk this morning with a poem bring in uh, some wise words by someone who spends her life considering what is true and staying with that, whatever it is. Sigmund Freud said, every time I discover something about life, every time, and you can imagine Sigmund Freud sitting around, scratching his beard, really thinking, you know, like, what is this about? He said, every time I think I have something figured out, it turns out that the poets have been there before me. <laughs> so the poets get there first. So, uh, And I chose this poem for a couple of reasons. One being um, the uh, beautiful morning that we've had with the gift of a little rain and the trees are blooming. Have you noticed in the last week? Just here they are. Makes me... Uh, remember that all through the winter things have been happening and now we get to see them a little bit more. So this poem is called The Summer Day and it's by Mary Oliver and I invite you to listen and notice what in it touches you. And I'll read it twice. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who was eating sugar out of my hand, who was moving her jaws back and forth, instead of up and down, who was gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. 
I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Mary Oliver summer day. So Mary Oliver is reminding us, pointing us, to the wonder of life. And that life for each of us does not go on forever. Before Shakyamuni Buddha became a Buddha, he was a prince with not a care in the world. And when he realized that life was limited and that we would all become sick and we would all age and that we would all die, it's actually what inspired him to embark on his quest that led eventually to him becoming Shakyamuni Buddha. So if you can picture... Buddhism as a 
tree with really deep roots that go all the way down. Way down, the tips of those roots began through paying attention to how precious life is and how limited life is. He then went on to teach um, about how we can live uh, in light of this truth in a way that is uh, happy, in a way that expresses awakening or leads to awakening. I'd like to read to you actually a piece of um, a sutta from uh, the Buddhist scriptures or sutta. Because the Buddha went on to teach how we might live. And his teachings began with the rarity or the preciousness. What the Buddha taught was, of course, not written down by the Buddha himself. We don't even know how exactly how long it took for things to be written down. Um, But I like to think that the people who wrote these things down mostly got it right. And... uh, Suppose, O monks, this mighty earth were one mass of water and a man were to throw down thereon a yoke with one hole. Then comes a wind from the east and wafts it west and a wind from the west wafts it east. A north wind wafts it south and a south wind wafts it north. Then once at the end of a hundred years a blind turtle would push his neck through that yoke with one hole whenever he popped up to the surface at the end of a hundred years. So that's, I don't know what those odds are, but they're pretty unlikely. Not just a turtle, but a blind turtle. So you can picture this turtle just heading towards the surface every hundred years. What is the likeness that he would poke his nose through uh, like a lifesaver floating on the surface? It is unlikely that the blind turtle would do that. It is just as unlikely, O monks, that one will get birth in human form. Just as unlikely that a Buddha should arise in the world, a fully enlightened one. Just as unlikely that the Dharma and practice proclaimed by the Buddha should be shown in the world. Therefore, O monks, you must make an effort to realize life is precious. Life is full of illness. There are many causes of illness. Awakening is the end of illness and suffering. The Dharma is the way leading to the end of suffering. So it's right here.
our precious life. We each were that blind turtle. So the Buddha and Mary Oliver ask us or direct us to not miss this life, to not miss this life, to aspire and cultivate a rich and uh, mindful engagement with this human experience. The world around us would have us believe that the inner life is not quite as important as the outer life. The outer world wants our attention to things like acquisition and fame and beauty and security. And uh, yet, the truth is, when I stand in the grocery line and look at the covers of those magazines that tell me all these things, my right hip hurts. (laughs) I'm wondering how far the tomatoes on the conveyor belt have come. You know, at what price have these things come to me, you know? I think to myself, I have everything I need. And yet, I look at those magazines and I think, oh yeah, if I had that, I would be happy. So we have a great capacity in the world around us helps us uh, to be um, distracted, to be enchanted, to be asleep, asleep. I'm not quite sure why zombie movies have become as popular as they have (laughs) with... uh, Perhaps not my generation, but the next one. But, you know, the, the image of uh, the walking dead, you know, that, that we have the, each have the capacity to really not be in our lives. So, uh, my own um, spiritual path and uh, Dharma practice has been primarily uh, in the footsteps of a prince who then encountered old age sickness and death. I have been studying um, suffering in its forms of aging and sickness and dying and loss. Not because I have had a great many personal losses and tragedies, but more that um, when I do pay attention, my hip hurts. <laughs> when I do pay attention, my mother and father look old. When I do pay attention, there are people uh, 
living in the park near me who are very ill, very, very ill, primarily mental illness. It's a challenging practice, one, because it's no picnic or party to take a look at this truth. And it's also challenging because we live in primarily a death-denying society. If we were in India right now, we would probably have had some reminders on our way here that this is the nature of life. But because we're so wealthy in this country, we have enough protection from the truth and we did not pass a great number of people on the sidewalks who were sick. We did not hear or witness a funeral procession on our way here, or maybe one of us did. You may very well have been at a stoplight with a white van and limousines, excuse me, hearses. That's funny. Uh, Hearses now are white unmarked vans. But we're pretty protected from this truth. And we also live now in a grief-denying society where our responses and our, the impact of change, of aging, of loss, uh, is hidden. You know? Once upon a time, in public, people would wear black. <laughs> or everybody in the neighborhood knew that your mother was living um, in your second bedroom and remembered to ask you about her, you know, that, but now these losses and changes are very well hidden, yeah. You can't tell that I have a bad hip (laughs) by looking at me. I can't tell who here has come with a heavy heart this morning, either from a change you're undergoing or from the stress you feel in caring for another or for the grief you carry from somebody having died and you're adjusting to their being gone. And yet, given that there are probably 75 people in the room, chances are it's true. It's really, really true. Actually, can I get a little audience participation and just any of those things do apply to you how about if we each raise our hands and just we can look around and see who else here is coping with significant change aging health care (laughs) aging yeah as we speak we're aging yes (laughs) caregiving how many people if you keep your hand out of caring for a child sibling a neighbor an aging partner a pet yeah Yourself and your own illness. Yeah. So uh, the Buddha actually taught um, it's rarer to find a teacher in human form than to find a teacher of old age. You know, that that aging is our teacher and a very nearby teacher. (laughs) Whereas to find a a wise Dharma teacher is a pretty, pretty rare. Yeah. So this has been my practice. Um, 
my inquiry. I think it's held my attention not because it's so interesting that we suffer, uh, but more so that in the midst of our suffering, we have a tremendous capacity to be brave and to be strong and to forbear what's challenging. Yesterday I was uh, teaching a course for caregivers and inviting people to do some Zen sewing, which is a particular practice. And one of the participants came to me a half an hour into the hour-long activity and kind of threw down his fabric and needle and thread. Threw it down. Said, I can't do this. I, my brain is changing in my aging and I don't have spatial perception consistently enough to put a needle through a piece of fabric. So we talked a while and I encouraged him to not leave the room but to just sit with us and not use a needle. As a group we talked about Uh, the miracles of fabric glue, a little bit with him, you know. (laughs) As an option for the project. And then somebody else, somebody else said to him, well, how about if I sit down next to you and I'll work the needle, but you'll sit next to me and we'll sew together. This is why I pay close attention to aging and sickness and really appreciate caring for people. Because in that moment, I just thought, how generous, how kind. (laughs) At the end of the day, he picked up his fabric and his needle and he said, well, I'm gonna take this home and I have a friend who's coming over and we'll see. I mean, this is such, so brave. So, because boy, I, I, you know, when I throw something down and say, I can't do it, I really mean it. <laughs> Anybody else here gotten to the point where you just throw down, you're like, uh-uh, done, can't, won't, no more, you know. But uh, once in a while that changes and something comes around. The, the Dharma teaching that everything changes, including our bodies and our health, is uh, not the best news. But sometimes when things are difficult, it's great news that things change. So, you know, we can go from one moment of I can't to another moment of maybe I will. And I have found mindfulness practice and particularly seated meditation as a wonderful training ground for the cycle of trying to do something (laughs) and then it not going well or forgetting and then coming back again. Has anybody noticed this when you sit meditation? I'm going to go, I'm going to sit down, I got the right clothes, I got the right cushion, I got the right people. You know, like... 
This, this spot is in the nexus of Buddhist practice in the West, in the middle of Silicon Valley. I mean, it doesn't get any better in terms of support and opportunity and uh, safety. And yet, I close my eyes and, what should I have for lunch? <laughs> I should really be doing this right since I'm sitting up here. What will tomorrow be like? You know, we, we just, we set ourselves on a course and then we fall off, yeah. But then, uh, my mind comes back around or I feel your presence or I remember my intention and I come back. And my particular method for staying present, um, I have two mechanisms that's, that work really well for me and I'll offer them to you. Some of you may already be practicing them. One is to count my breathing I find this a great <laughs> tether, if you will, for my mental activity. It's just like a tying down a hot air balloon. You know, like I go off and then I can kind of, so the counting. Uh, and the second is the sensation of breathing. Yeah. There's lots of places to experience the breath. Um, I watch my diaphragm yeah, move. Really helpful. When I was with a student yesterday who did not want to sew, once he really spoke the truth about his limitation and his feelings about his brain changing, I noticed that he was breathing more deeply, more relaxed. Our brains have two modes, a reactive mode that keeps us really alert and ready to, like if there was a loud sound out in the street, we would all be startled. Or if I was walking with somebody who tripped, I would automatically try to help them up before I even thought about it. You know, like we have a really great reactive mind. But it's also a mind that will tell me if I do something wrong in front of 75 people, Something's wrong with me. <laughs> beep, beep, wrong, wrong, wrong. Or if somebody cuts in front of me in that grocery line, that they're a bad person. We have a second mode in our minds, which is the responsive mind uh, that happens in the front of the brain. And uh, we now have three decades of scientific research confirming what um, the Buddha taught and offered, which is that we can shape our brains and become with effort and time and good company we can reside more in a brain that is responsive and that has equanimity and curiosity so that I say to myself they shouldn't be cut in front of me in line oh I wonder what's happening for that person today. (laughs) I know what it's like to be in a rush or to completely be stressed and not even notice somebody. So the responsive brain is more actually compassionate than than the reactive brain. The reactive brain is for survival. The compassionate brain 
is oriented towards relatedness and remembering. This also helps me when I'm sitting meditation and get distracted. My what can bring me back is my my hope, my aspiration that there'll be more minutes in the day when I am present and uh, engaged rather than asleep or distracted. And when I'm with people who are sick, people who are dying, I find I have the muscle strength, if you will, the heart, body, and mind strength to come back again and again to that moment with them and not leave the room. One of the problems in living in a death-denying society is that nobody is teaching us how to be with each other when we're really sick. Our elders are not teaching us to just sit there and be quiet. It takes, uh, it takes effort to be comfortable with silence. It takes trust to be patient with not knowing and waiting. It takes mindfulness, actually, at, to um, not be swept away by the truth. I'm going to um, stop talking and ask you to talk to each other for a few minutes. One person's mouth is not big enough to say the whole thing. And I have a big mouth. So I'm, I invite you to turn to the person next to you and tell them what is on your mind as I'm talking. It might be somebody. It might be something about yourself. Um, Turning to somebody in some ways is to kind of turn towards the truth that this is around us all the time. So I just want you to talk for a few minutes to the person next to you after you tell them your name. What, What have you noticed or what may be true in your life right now of something that is precious to you, like the grasshopper in the poem, or your aspiration to live your life, or, again, somebody that's on your heart and mind who is, who is ill or suffering today. Okay? And then while you're listening to the other person, I have a request. Please don't help that person <laughs> by giving them any advice. Uh, when somebody else gives us advice it can distract us from just the truth and uh, I think we need to begin with the truth so just you'll have five minutes and I'll ring the bell and hopefully you'll each have had a moment or two and you can also meet somebody who's in this great special place this morning well it seems like you had something to talk about so I can't be too off track in what I've offered. Uh, uh, so that's that's a good that's a good thing. So I just have a few more minutes. Um, thank you for talking to each other. I would say the 
what I've discovered um, is that there is kind of a couple of steps that point me in the right direction in terms of this path and practice and sticking with it. Um, and they were articulated by a, a dear teacher of mine who actually died uh, just a year ago. The anniversary is this coming week. She taught me quite a bit and uh, she articulated embarking on a spiritual practice um, as she was very articulate in a kind of cryptic way which works for me because I'm from New Jersey so I kind of <laughs> I like it straight up shaken not stirred and uh, she said first we have to show up we really have to show up second we have to pay attention really have to pay attention. Third, we have to tell the truth. The real truth. Not the truth we'd like. But the the truth of our own goodness. The truth of our own self-deception. The truth of our courage. The truth of our brokenness. And then fourth, she said, And then once you've done that, you just get to open and see what happens next. (laughs) Open to outcome. See what happens next. Yeah. Her name was Angelus Arian. And uh, I miss her. I'm very grateful for what she taught me. So, um, as uh, Martha mentioned in my uh, little bio, um, I teach people about practicing in this way. Uh, The Sati Center sponsors a course in Buddhist chaplaincy, and there's a day-long orientation to that course if you're interested. It's coming up in April. I also teach a course uh, in caring for other people that's offered in San Francisco at the Zen Center, and that's the flyer... Thank you, Martha, that I put out there. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. Um, and once a year here, I teach a course in um, compassion cultivation, which some of you have taken. I recognize some faces. And Wendy took the chaplaincy course. and Yeah, 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 yeah. So let me leave you with this. At the end of the day, here's one perspective. It is love that fashions us into the fullness of our being. Not our looks, not our work, not our wants, not our achievements, not our parents, not our status, not our dreams. These are all but the fodder and the filler the navigating fuels of our lives. But it is love. Who we love, how we love, why we love, and that we love, which ultimately shapes us. It is love, before all and after all, in the beginning and in the end, that creates us. So today, remembering this, Let yourself acknowledge and remember the moments, 
events and people who bring you, even momentarily, into a true experience of love. And allow the rest, the inescapable mundanities of life, to pass away quietly like clouds. So I wish you all an experience of love in its many forms. I thank you for your kind attention and uh, may the merit of our time together, may any good karma generated by this time go off into the world with each of you. Please take the merit of our time together out into the world. Take it to the two-leggeds and the four-leggeds, the creatures with wings and fins, beings above, below, near and far, born and yet to be born. May all these beings be happy and free from suffering. May all these beings receive the merit of our time together to find a path to love. And please keep a little bit for yourself. Thank you all.